this chapter, almost with each thing that he says, Jesus has effectively raised the stakes in terms of who he is and in terms of the response that he expects to receive from them. He could have avoided that. He could have avoided pressing the issue onto them. He could have stepped back a little bit. He could have allowed the crowds and the various Jewish leaders who were there, who were around him, to stay appreciating the signs that he was doing, listening to the teaching that he was doing, applauding him, giving him accolades for the things that they had seen and for the things that they had heard. It could have continued like that. It could have continued like that, and to all appearances, it could have been a comfortable arrangement. Someone could have some come to Jesus and say, hey, don't press this right now. Give people some time to kind of catch up to where you are. It would have been comfortable, comfortable for the crowds, nice for Jesus to have the crowds around to have stayed like that. But that obviously is not the case. The problem with that idea is the problem of appearances. Jesus is not content with how things look. Jesus is not content with appearances. From the beginning of this passage, and I told us about it at the very beginning of the passage, from the beginning of the passage, Jesus has been testing hearts, testing everybody's heart who is in shouting distance or in whispering distance. You remember what he said to Philip when the crowds are approaching him at the very beginning of this, verse 5 of, of chapter 6, he leans over and says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? This is the first test. This is the first one that's going out. What do you think, Philip? And we read, he said this to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. Jesus knows. He knows what is in the heart of every man and every woman and every child, and it matters. It matters more than outward appearances. I put the verse on the front of the bulletin, one that probably many of us know well. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The heart matters. For 40 years, the people of Israel were led and were pressed by God in the wilderness to test and to reveal what was in their hearts. Let me see what is inside of you. Jesus compresses that time. It's not 40 years. He compresses the time and he presses the issue to reveal the thoughts and the intentions of the heart and the hearts of the people who are around him. The result of the pressure that Jesus is putting on right here is defection, it is allegiance, and it is the rest of the story. 
Let's look at the defection initially here. The dictionary says this, defection is abandonment or desertion from allegiance. And clearly, in the passage that I just read for us, a defection is at hand. And we're not right now only talking about the crowds or the Jewish leaders. As I read the passage, you may have gotten a little bit confused because who we're talking about here are the disciples. Now, the disciples, as it's used in this particular context, are distinguished from the 12. Obviously, whoever this group is, the disciples, he's then going to address the 12 in particular. If you think about it for a moment, you can just think about it as uh, a series of concentric circles. On the one hand, you've got the crowds, that is the mass of people who are around him. And then in this passage, you have who are referred to as the Jews, probably those who represent Jewish leadership in the particular areas that he's working in, the synagogue leadership that is there. And then you have a crowd who are called the disciples within that. Those are not the 12, but they are obviously a set of people who are following after Jesus, not just fickle crowd-like people, but more seriously pursuing Jesus, more seriously spending time following him from place to place and to listen to what he is saying. And then, of course, you have the 12 as well. Now, let me, let me break this down, uh, this, this defection that goes on here a little bit further. Let's, let's start with this simple idea, offense taken. Now, all of us are familiar with this phrase because it's used in everyday language, no offense. Well, the offense is taken here on the part of these people. In verse 61, Jesus asked this question, do you take offense at this? And the answer is, yes. As a matter of fact, we do. We do take offense at what you are saying. They are grumbling. Even as the Jewish leadership, we, if, last week, uh, verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Well, grumbling is going on now, except the circle's gotten tighter. Now it's those in that, that, that closer circle of disciples who are grumbling about him. So where is the offense taken? What is the object of the offense? People, weans, can take offense at any number of things. Now I'm going to point to what could have been areas of offense that were taken here. And I want to tell you that I could translate all of these. It would take me two seconds to translate them into our day and life in a church, not even to mention life in society, just life in a church, the way we can take offense at things. So what is, what is the object of offense here in John chapter six? Probably a compilation of these things. It could be that he had rebuked them for the seeking that they were doing. He said, you know, you're seeking after the wrong thing. Yeah, you've, you've come across the sea, you've followed after me, but you're seeking the wrong thing. People don't like to be rebuked. Some of you might say, no, I love to be rebuked because that makes me grow and I learn more things. That's, that's a lie of your heart. Listen to your heart. No one likes to be rebuked. I mean, yes, on the one level I can say yes, but no, I don't like it. People don't like to be rebuked. It could be as simple as that. 
It could be the implicit claim that he was making, and we talked about this last week, that he was, in fact, greater than Moses. Moses provided bread in the wilderness, but the people died there. Jesus, in fact, says, I'm giving you true bread, which has come down from heaven, and I'm not only giving it to one nation for 40 years, I'm actually giving it to you for the life of the world. Those who partake of me will never die. And so he's saying, in essence, I'm actually giving you something greater than Moses. It could be the graphic language that he used in the section that goes right before this, eating the flesh and drinking the blood. People get offended when you use certain types of language. They might have said to him, hey, that's kind of inappropriate, you know, for the synagogue. We don't, we don't talk that way in the synagogue. Maybe they even understood, I understand you're, you're using a metaphor here. You're not talking actually about cannibalism, but who knows? Maybe some, all that they could hear was, hey, that, that sounds awful. And they were offended by the way that he said it. It could be the authority, the heavenly origin that Jesus is claiming. Right? Jesus is claiming that he came down from heaven uniquely. And they're going to themselves, wait a minute, don't we know his parents? We, we know who his parents are. We know where the, he came from. It could be the association of life to people through death and through sacrifice. If you're going to eat his flesh and drink his blood and that's the way you live, that means he's dead. And that idea of me getting life through your death and me partaking of your body and your blood is distasteful, offensive. It could be that they're disappointed that Jesus wasn't more practical. They looked at him and they thought, here's a guy who understands the tough things in life. He understands that people get sick and he heals people who get sick. They understand that Jesus recognizes, hey, people get hungry and he gives bread to people who get hungry. And they thought, well, let's make him a king. They wanted Jesus to be involved in all sorts of good endeavors, taking care of mundane things, taking care of big mundane, again, in the, in the sense of, of the world, of the earth. And they could have thought when he got into all this spirituality, they could have thought, well, okay, I guess we were wrong. We thought this was a guy who cared about social issues. And in reality, he's talking about spiritual stuff that we can't understand. This guy is just not practical. He just doesn't give us anything practical to do. We wanted something to do and he doesn't give us anything practical. We're leaving. I'm going to go find somebody who can give me something to do. It could be that as Jesus insists on God's absolute sovereignty in matters of salvation, in matters of understanding what is being said to them, and over the heart, it could be that they found that to be mighty offensive. The, the, the defection takes place, at least as it's written here, immediately after verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 
Well, thanks very much. We appreciate that vote of confidence for who we are internally. We'll see you later. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Regardless of the exact reason, offense is taken, and we see two manifestations of the defection that takes place. One is immediate. The disciples left. They turned back. They no longer walked with him, and that should scare all of us. All of us know people who walked with the Lord, who appeared to walk with the Lord, and who turned back. All of us know children. Children who grew up, and they answered a lot of good questions in Sunday school. And they did a lot of good things, but as they grew up, they turned away. They walked away from the faith. Some of them, that decision was on a dime. Some crisis of faith came up, some challenge to the faith came up, some sin came up, and they turned on a dime, and they said, I'm not walking with Christ after more. I don't, I, Christ anymore. I don't believe any of this stuff, and I'm going my own way. For others, it was more pernicious. It was a slow and subtle drift that took place away from the church, away from Bible reading, away from any kind of prayer. And before you know it, you find yourself outside. You find yourself having walked away, turned away from the things of God. The second defection that is described here is, of course, a betrayal of the highest order as Jesus speaks of Judas. And what John and what Jesus want to make clear is I'm not deceived by the heart of anybody. Even those who are closest to me, they are not pulling the wool over my eyes. I know what's going on inside of their hearts. Whether they're part of the inner circle or any of the other circles, I know what's going on inside of their hearts, and I know the betrayer. And so, let me say at this point, be on your guard. Defection is real, and it is possible. You may be visitors here. You may be members here. You may be children of people who have walked in the faith. You may serve on committees. You may be elders, deacons in the church. You may look great to all outward appearances, but the Lord knows the heart. He knows your heart. In the midst of this mass defection, and that's the only way you can understand, this is a mass defection we see a remarkable allegiance take place as well. Jesus turns to the 12, and he says to them, do you want to go away as well? Everybody else is gone. Do you want to go away as well? What do you really want? What's in your heart? What is the desire? Quit with the appearances. I want to know what's in your heart. What do you want? 
The defectors have acted on their desires. They did exactly what they wanted to do. They turned and they walked away. What do you want? What is in your heart? Darkness is all around at this moment. People aren't streaming up to Zion. They're not streaming up to the church. They're leaving in droves. They're walking away. The game's over. The show is over. And a fisherman pipes up. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Everyone's leaving, and a voice says that. Does that stir your soul? I hope it does. I hope it does to hear the confession that is made by that man. When the tide is carrying the mass of men away from Jesus, Peter makes the good confession. In the midst of unbelief and defection, he stands up and says, we believe our allegiance is with you, our hearts are with you. Peter won't always be so strong. <laughs> probably heard that, probably read other parts of the Gospels. Peter won't always act like this. But here he is, a stalwart, when everybody else is leaving. It is required of those who follow Jesus that they make the good confession. And so let's take this penetrating question from Jesus and turn it on ourselves. Hear it from your Lord. Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away? What do you really want? Each of us needs to hear that question. Corporately, we need to hear that question. Do you want to go away as well? What if half the church got up and left right now? What if three-quarters of the church got up and walked out the door right now? What if your parents got up and walked out? What if they walked? I'm offended, and they walked. What are you going to do? What are you going to say at that point? What do you want to do at that point? What if your wife walks out? What if your husband walks out? Knowing our heart, Jesus presses the question into our hearts. He wants no half-heartedness, no hypocrisy, no duplicity, no pretense, no insincerity. He doesn't want you coming here as just this casual, cultural, familial Christian. He doesn't want it. And he's not deceived. He's not confused. 
Your appearance doesn't confuse him. You want to go away as well? It is required of stores that they be found faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2 It is required of followers of Jesus that they make the good confession and so demonstrate the state of their heart and show their loyalty, their fealty, their allegiance. It is required. And without which do not expect eternal life from the Lord Jesus Christ. He books no insincerity. He books no half-heartedness. And he knows the heart. So in our story, there are defectors and there are, we'll call them loyalists. But as we close this section of John, we need to know the rest of the story. Because lest we get ahead of ourselves, I don't know what you said in your mind when I said, what do you want to do? Do you want to leave as well? Do you want to go away as well? I don't know what you said in your heart. I know what Peter said. And unless or lest we kind of pat ourselves on the back for our loyalty, for our good confession, lest we do that, listen to three verses. And I'm going to do these three verses in reverse order. I'm going to work from the end and work my way back up. Jesus answered them, verse 70, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Peter has just made a pretty grand statement. He's just basically said, We choose you. We choose Christ. We choose to follow you. We've believed. We understand. And Jesus puts a little check on Peter and says, excuse me, Peter. Did I not choose you? Peter, you know why you made that confession? It's not that your heart is so steadfast. It's not that you're so loyal. It's because I chose you. That's why you made it. Whoops. That kind of Peter just takes a step back and right. Right, okay, sorry about that. You have to make the good confession, and you have to know where the good confession comes from as well. And to make it clear, of course, later in John, it's going to be even clearer from Jesus. John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Just in case this passage isn't clear enough for you, that one certainly is clear enough to understand what Jesus is saying. I chose you. That is the work of the Son, I chose you. The work of the Father, verse 65, working our way back up through the passage. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Eternal life is granted by the Father, by the will of the Father. We cannot come to him we cannot make the good confession except from the work of the Father. The work of the Son, I chose you. The work of the Father, to grant them. 
to the Son. And then, of course, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit in life. Last week, we looked particularly as Jesus focused our attention on the work of the Son and the work of the Father. And now he draws our attention to the work of the Spirit. The Nicene Creed. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. That's what the Spirit does. He gives life. How do the words of Jesus, the words that he is saying here in John chapter 6, how do those words become to us words of life? Answer from the Shorter Catechism, by the effectual application of it to us by his Spirit. That's how his words become words of life. The Spirit takes them. The giver of life takes the words of Jesus and says, I am using those words as the instrument to convey and create life, new life, spiritual life, eternal life. And those who hear the word. And we're talking about life, and life is nice to talk about, but there is an unsettling assumption that lies right on the ground all around John chapter 6. We touched on it last week. And the unsettling assumption is that we're all going to die. Like the fathers who ate the manna in the wilderness, we're all going to die. And worse, even than physical death, is the spiritual death, the spiritual death which is both now and not yet. There's an element to which we, before we are believing in Christ, are dead spiritually. And there's a worse element to that as well, to experience the final death of body and soul. Jesus is talking in John chapter 6 to dead men walking. Spiritually dead, physically alive, but not for long. Death is all around. Defection is all around. Death hangs in the air. It is all around this passage. And in the midst of it, Jesus is offering to them life. Something utterly different than that which they can otherwise expect. Life. Life through his flesh which is puzzling because the second phrase of 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. How do we make sense of that? How can the flesh be of no help? Jesus just said, you need to eat of my flesh. Well, it goes back to the question at the very beginning of this. Remember last sermon? The question that comes up in verse 28 when Jesus has basically rebuked them for seeking the wrong thing, the question that comes from them is, well, what then must we do to do the works of God? Tell us. We'll do it. Put our feet on the ground. We'll get to work, and we'll do it. And the answer is nothing. Nothing. The flesh is no help. 
There is nothing you can do. There is no job that I can give you. There's nothing physically that can be done to help you out of death. And your spirit is equally impotent. Remember we made this clear last week. You can't believe. You can't understand. You can't make sense of any of this. You can't even interpret the signs that I'm doing. You can't see beyond the signs to me. Your spirit is impotent. Not only can you not do anything, you can't even do the one thing I require. You can't even believe. You cannot do anything. Jesus strips us naked with his words. He leaves us with nothing. Your flesh and your spirit are dead and they are useless. And the reason I want to say strips us naked is to attach the verse that I started right before I did the reading. The the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. The verse after it is, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That is what Jesus has done here. He has stripped it all away. You've got nothing you can do with your flesh. You've got nothing that you can do with your mind. You've got nothing that you can do with your heart. With men, it is impossible. Your flesh is of no value. We're trapped in a body of sin and death. Your flesh is of no value. Your spirit is dead. But, Jesus says, my flesh, what I do, and the spirit who dwells in me, whom I will send in my name, that vivify. That can revive your spirit now and your body I will raise up on the last day. I will take care of you body and soul. For now I will renew you spiritually. Sorry, a flash thought from a guy who sent me a family letter today, an old pastor friend of mine, who sent a family letter this week, and he closed it by saying, after giving up, giving various reports, he said, yes, and, and my wife's back continues to really bother her, and I'm struggling with my diabetes, but it's nothing the resurrection won't take care of. You know that guy? Nothing the resurrection won't take care of. What's wrong with your body? Nothing the resurrection won't take care of. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is not of ourselves as much as we might think it is. It is not of ourselves so that no one can boast. Does that offend you? Do you take offense at that? I did. First time I heard that, I I didn't get converted at a Presbyterian church. First time I heard that, study of Romans 9, Student Union, University of Maryland. Someone was explaining this. I think I've I've shared this before. Sorry, it's one of the pinnacle moments of my life. I've got to share this. Pounded the table, 
right in the middle of the student union, said, if that's who God is, I don't want any part of him. You mean I'm not in charge? I'm not in charge of my destiny? If that's who he is, I'm out of here. I walk, got up. I walked away. I did what the disciples did. I was in a defection mode. I don't want any part of him. <laughs> you know what eventually got to me? Lord, to whom shall I go? <laughs> to whom? <laughs> what else am I going to do? I didn't understand at that point the kindness of God, the mercy of God. I did not understand how impotent I was. I could do nothing to affect my salvation, no more than I could to affect my birth, my existence, my health. Another story. I was in Ukraine. I was reading devotional time, and whatever I was reading, I found troubling, I found disconcerting. I, 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 I read it, and I was confused. And as I was pondering it, I heard a little tune in the back of my head. Now, sometimes you, 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 songs are going on back somewhere in your head. And I heard a tune, and I'm thinking, and I'm finally, the tune got distracting, and I thought, what is that tune? And so I pulled it to the front, I listened to the tune, and the tune was from my Lutheran liturgy growing up. It was the tune that followed the reading of the gospel. And you know what the words of the tune were? Hallelujah, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Hallelujah, hallelujah. The press from Jesus is on. And many defect. Many things in life are going to confuse us. Kids, many things are going to confront you. They're going to confuse you. They're going to puzzle you. They're going to make you doubt. They're going to make you wonder. In the Bible, we will read things. We just finished Joshua last year. We're going to go to Judges in a few weeks. I guarantee you that while we're plowing through the book of Judges, you're going to go, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? We will get confused. We will get puzzled. Don't turn away. Don't turn back. Don't spend your life laboring after the things that perish. Prioritize your pursuit of the imperishable, of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus from which we cannot be separated. Because who can lay a charge against Jesus? Seek the Lord while he may be found, and you will find that you were sought, you were bought, you were loved, by the Father and His Son and the Holy Spirit unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Great God in heaven above, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Let it soak into us. We long for union with you, conformity of our mind to yours, our hearts to be like yours, our lives to be like yours. 
work it in us deeply for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.